0: Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. We will continue our exposition in this Gospel, looking today at just verses 3 to 5 in the first chapter. And um, my studies have been delightful in this. I can't wait to really just start plowing through, but um, this prologue is just dense. So we're just taking enough time to really get through the first 18 verses And then my plan is to take larger chunks as we continue, Um, you know, like maybe even 15 verses all at once, believe it or not. (laughs) uh, One thing the Gospels do is they answer a question. Who is this man? Isn't it remarkable how many times you read in the Gospels that that is actually recorded by the Gospel writers? For example, um, in Matthew 21 and verse 10, uh, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Or back in Luke uh, chapter 5, the scribes and the Pharisees began reasoning, saying, Who is this man that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But that's not enough. Even Herod asked the question. Herod says, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. We're going to be introduced to the idea of um, light and life today. John uses very simple words, but to speak profound truths. In James Montgomery Boyce's commentary, he references several years ago, an old woman in the bush country of southern Rhodesia in Africa said to a missionary, you have brought us light, but we don't seem to want it. You have brought us light, but we still walk in darkness. She was speaking only of the life that she knew in Africa But her words aptly describe the reaction of people everywhere to the light of Jesus Christ, whom he first shone into the world. He was the light of the world in one sense. He had always been the light of the world. Yet when he appeared, the world rejected him because it preferred darkness. And John will mention that several times um, throughout his gospel. So, Today, John, you know, we've, we were introduced to the logos, the Word, um, last time, and now this week we're going to see the logos light that He offers illumination to every person that would come to Him, every person that would humble themselves. Illumination that the light of the life of Christ could enter in. That that life was the light of men, as it were. It shines into the context of darkness. Even our dark, depraved hearts, because we're born in sin, we're slaves to sin, apart from being rescued by Christ in heaven, the shackles broken free. And then we'll see also in our text the darkness did not overcome it. So let's read together. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 to 13, just start getting the broader context. So follow along with me, please. Reading from the New American Standard Version. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light that all might believe through him. Now, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own. Those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the the men that spilt their blood to preserve it. We thank you, Lord, that you have preserved your infallible word even to this day, that we can look at it and rely upon it. Lord, we pray that you'd give us understanding even this day as we look into this glorious gospel and really just taking a couple of verses. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the light has come in the world. We thank you for the light of the world, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to worship him rightly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we introduced the book last week, and we talked about the uniqueness of the Gospel of John, how it's not like the synoptics, the other three. There are certain unique factors. We talked about how glorious it is that we have the good news to us, Right, the gospel of the grace of God that comes to ruin sinners. We, we discuss the idea that the gospel, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of salvation, the gospel is the good news of peace and the good news of hope. Matthew focuses on Christ as king. Mark focuses on Christ as servant. Luke focuses on Christ's humanity. And John focuses on his deity. John leaves out much of the things that are included in the other three. Example, um, the accounts of his birth, temptation, transfiguration. But he also includes rich portions that we don't have in any of the other, other Gospels. I mean, the, even his early ministry in Judea is really from chapter 1 of verse 19 up through chapter 5. You don't have any of that in the other Gospels. So four to six months of ministry we have captured for us. And then, of course, those upper room discourses. And John wants to shock his readers. In the beginning, in the very, very beginning, before time, was the Word. And the Word was God. He deliberately uses language. that would throw our minds back to Genesis 1.1. And the Word, the Logos, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because down in verse 14, he makes it abundantly clear. Um, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, as the only begotten of the Father. The deity of Christ is clearly set forth for us just in the very first verse. And the Word was God, not a God, not you know anything else. The Word was God. And then in verse two, and He was in the beginning with God. The preposition, the Greek is pros. It's it's facing towards, it's the idea of intimate fellowship, face-to-face, like two lovers. Beautiful picture of the Holy Trinity and the fellowship that took place. That takes place in heaven. Well, today we're going to see these themes of light and life being introduced. He'll, he'll come back to that again and again and again. In fact, I think light, John uses some 54 times throughout his gospel and his epistles. That's a lot. So these types of things. And then life, of course, is mentioned, and especially eternal life, right? Through Jesus our Lord is is driven home in this gospel again and again. These are dominant themes. So taking verses 3 and 5 only, I have three simple points. Jesus is the creator of all things. In him was life and light. And then lastly, the light penetrates the darkness. So first of all, verse 3 here. Jesus is the creator of all things. We have something of of his work, not his atoning work, but his work of creation set before us. Creation was by his design, though he was not created, right? It was his design. Leon Morris said the word existed before creation, which makes it clear that the word was not created. The word is not only included among the created beings, So there never was a time, there never was anything before he was. John states the truth first positively and then negatively, right? All things came into being through him, and then nothing came into being apart from him. And so he makes it very clear for us to see. Paul writes uh, to the Colossians, Speaking of Christ, he is the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's, a, that's a really a mouthful. That's, that's a, the, the concepts that Paul's writing here is, is profound. All things have been created through him and for him, right? For his glory, ultimately. For his purposes, we might say. And, but he is before all things. Is Christ a thing? All things were created? No, he's before all things. He's the preeminent son of God, even in Genesis 1. 26, as it references the the pinnacle of God's creation, right? You've had the the five days of creation leading up to the creation of man. The pinnacle of his creation is what? It's you. It's mankind. And, and, And so he says, let us make man in our image. And so as brothers and sisters, we are image bearers of God. Now, sin shattered that image bearer. Think of a mirror, right brand new mirror it's like pristine it's reflecting a perfect image but that mirror has fallen and it's splintered and it's shattered and it's 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 broken in so many ways right and that's what happens to us because we are born in sin but then redemption comes Christ dies reconciliation to god and those pieces it's not back to that perfect mirror right with no cracks but it's much tighter together because of redemption Mankind is the, is the pinnacle, really, of, of uh, his creation. And the word here is really the, the executor, as it were, of creation. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Now, Jesus continues to relate to his creation as he sustains it. He sustains what he has created. All things are held together by His power. It's, it's an amazing thing. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and He upholds by the word of His power all things. It's by the word of His power. In a real, real sense, if He relaxed, we would cease to exist. He holds together all things. By the word of his power. He's the owner of all of his creation, right? He owns everything. He owns us. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He, he owns it all. So that's verse three. John, uh, again, uses these simple words to co- communicate deep truths. Look at verse four with me. In him was life, and the life, which better uh, could be, you could put that life, right? In him was life. Oh, and that life was the light of men. That life was the light of men. Now, does John mean physical or spiritual life? Many of the commentators are all over the place, like, oh, strongly that it's speaking of just all the physical life, life, and then others are spiritual, but I agree with D.A. Carson and others that both things are certainly in view here right? It's, t- it's, it's tightly connected with verse 3. Everything that was created, right? Not just uh, the sixth day of creation or redemption, but everything that he has created. A.W. Pink puts it like this. This follows logically from what has been said in the previous verse. If Christ created all things, He must be the fountain of life. He is the life giver. We understand life to be used here in the widest sense. Creature life is found in God. For in him we live and move and have our being. Spiritual life or eternal life or resurrection life are also found in him. Light and life are divine attributes of the Son of God. It's amazing just to slow down and just consider Consider his creation just for a moment. Consider the the fish of the sea and the incredible variety of the different colors and species and all of that, or the fowl of the air. The the complexities of how God made the hummingbird that as I was preparing on my front porch enjoying coffee this morning, that just kept coming humming humming and eating from my hummingbird feeder just above my head. It's an amazing thing to think about God's creation. Think of the whole animal kingdom. Think about the grass of the field and the blooming flowers. This is all life. This is all part of his creation. Think of even the stars and the galaxies and you look up into the sky at night when you're out of the city and and you just see what seems to be tens of thousands of stars. And you consider that even just we're In our galaxy, like, it's it's hard to even think beyond Earth and then our solar system. Within our galaxy, which has billions of stars, and then you realize that there are, oh, there's billions of galaxies like ours. It's phenomenal. That short-circuits my brain. In him was life. He created all things for his glory. John 5 and verse 26 For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And John's first letter in verse 5, this is a message we've heard from him and announced to you, that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. So the life that is characterized by light, the light of men, this light shines into the darkness And it is not appropriated by sinful men. Sinful men want to reject that. And with with, reference, as he says, even in the the next verse, the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it or extinguish it, you might think. We'll get to that in a a little bit here. At Christmas, we love to sing. I don't know why we only sing it at Christmas, but uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? You guys are all familiar with that? How about this line? Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace! Hail the Son of Righteousness! Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing and his wings. Now I've sung that hymn probably a hundred times, hundreds of times, whatever. I never put that light and life to right here in this text. Wesley's just extracting all these scriptural truths as he wrote that hymn. So of course... Christ breathes physical life into mankind as he created them at the first creation in Genesis, but also by his divine sovereignty, he breathes spiritual life into his elect, as they would be called, effectually called by the power of the Holy Spirit to come to faith in Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture that he does for us. We just read it Chapter one, verse thirteen: Who were born not of blood; it's not a royal lineage. You know the King Charles, the grandson, Amen. You know or um, you know, whatever. It's not any of that. <coughs> Excuse me. Or the will of the flesh that you desire to be saved in your own strength, nor the will of man, but of God, being born of Him. <coughs> John ten ten: The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. So light is both physical and spiritual. We can just think back to Moses as he was going up to Mount Sinai in the midst of the thunderings, in the midst of the smoke, and the lightning, and and all of that. And In Exodus 33, 18, he, he, he asked God, Show me your glory. Show me your glory. I want to see your glory. What does he do? Put him in the cleft of the rock. His hand there, as it were, passes his backside. You know what happened when he went down from that mountain? He was glowing. He was glowing just from that little bit, the afterglow, as it were, of God. The effect on Moses was so intense that his face became so bright that his people could not look upon him. He had been in contact with the physical, physicalness of God's glory. There's many such metaphors, the Shekinah glory of God, the, the pillar that, that led uh, of light and, and darkness that led the people of God. But here, um, also, certainly speaking of spiritual light, right? We are in darkness in our sin, and spiritual light comes in and illuminates us. Um, Kent Hughes puts it like this, Life-giving light seeks out a world lost in darkness. What a rich image of our Lord. Light journeying endlessly, seeking a place to illuminate, a place to bring warmth and light, penetrating every crevice or opening. The smallest light will reveal an object's true nature, and our Lord is a light shining in the darkness. John says, The light shines into the darkness. It was said that during World War II, you know, they had the blackouts in London, that a lit match could be seen from 20 miles away. It was so pitch dark in the air because it was so dark that just even a one lit match could be seen from 20 miles away. So, in him was life, and I like, and that life was the light of men. Verse 5. The light shines, present tense, in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Light penetrates the darkness. The the light shines, and the darkness uh, does not overpower it. The the Greek word could be translated either way. It's translated both ways in other places in the Bible. Comprehend, but I like the idea of overpower. I think probably the ESV gets it best. Um, The light shines still. All translations get that right. It's present tense. It's still shining. It didn't didn't shine or shined in the past, right? And it it shines. And then the ESV has, and the darkness has not overcome it. Implication will never overcome it, right? Leon Morris says, light and darkness came to a bitter and indecisive conflict, and the darkness could not prevail. I like that. I like that. Well, what is darkness? What is darkness? Uh, John uses it, the word skotia only occurs 16 times in the entire New Testament. John uses it 14 times. Of the 14 times he uses it, it only refers to a literal or physical darkness twice. For example, in John 20, when the women came to the tomb after the resurrection, it was still dark. That's obviously speaking of a, a literal Darkness, but all the remainder are used in a spiritual sense. Nearing the crucifixion, our Lord says, this is the hour of darkness. See the depravity of sinful man, it says in Ephesians 4. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts, that hardness of their hearts, that callousness, that that um, calcification, as it were, of their hearts, but darkened in their understanding, you know, the darkness of fallen angels, all the demons that hate you and the church, and Satan, the arch enemy, right, representing darkness. You have. The depravity of men. You have the depravity even of their works, as it says in Romans 13, 12. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Put aside the deeds of darkness. Hector just read for us from Ephesians 5, verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness right but rather expose them we live in a world of darkness we live in a world that's depressing i mean turn on the news you know you you know what's going on around the world the effects of physical death britta has a fever could not be here today henry's sister is in the hospital dying in sacramento there's no believers in the family no one to go read the word <clears throat> that hurts them physical death aaron's mother coming very close to death being put on a ventilator being in the hospital with covid and all of that and by god's grace lord willing she'll be coming home this week but she's come such a long way but the effects of physical death are all around us the the effects of we live in a broken world and there's so many of the broken relationships right depression and anxiety come as a result of we living in a sinful and dark world praise god that we have hope in christ praise god that he can restore praise god that that he can take make beauty from ashes by restoring us to him by giving us an earnest desire to live for his glory Kent Hughes once again says, literally, this, the light shines in the darkness, means it shines continually into the darkness, meaning that Christ is continually bombarding every corner of our hearts of darkness through the work of his Holy Spirit in nature and conscience and the Scriptures. You see, for the child of God, that light still is shining. Oh, we have to, we, even though we're regenerated, we, we have dark corners of our heart and that light is seeking to come in and to expose it to enable us to to put off sin once and for all he uses the conscience he uses the holy scriptures he uses the means of grace he uses the third person of the holy trinity the holy spirit to convict and to convince of sin for the believer right or those that are being called certainly well the fall of man has plummeted man into spiritual darkness john calvin said the blindness of unbelievers in, in no way detracts from the clarity of the gospel. Just because we see the blindness at Balboa Park and Planned Parenthood of, of those that are outside of Christ, and even family members, there's a blindness. The gospel's been shared so many times, but you just can't force them to understand. You want to flip a switch. Now can you understand, right? But you can't. And so what what, what Calvin is saying is the blindness that we see in these unbelievers... No way detracts from the clarity, the pristine clarity of the gospel of the grace of God for ruined sinners. He goes on to say, the sun is no less bright because a blind man cannot perceive the light. See, just because a blind man can't see the sun, it's no less bright. It's still bright. And so too Christ as the light and the clarity of the gospel. We see manifestation of man's wickedness. Romans chapter 1, Paul lays this out verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Or unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them For God made it evident to them. Do you see what he's saying? saying, No no one is, you are without excuse. You can't say, well, I didn't know. I didn't have enough light. I didn't understand. No, just you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Goes on, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen being understood that what has been made so that we, or so that they, are without excuse. You're not going to be able to stand on that day, my unconverted friend, who may be here and claim that you didn't have enough light. You are, will be without excuse. For even though they knew God, what he means by that, that they knew that there was a God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was what? darkened. I wish I, we had time to read the uh, whole rest of the chapter, but it's, there's almost like this suppressing of the truth, the, the heart becoming more and more darkened, suppressing the truth, denying that there's a God, even though deep down you know that there's one, what happens is, therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchange, the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned a desire towards one another. Men with men committing committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things "...which are not proper, filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, even gossips and slanderers and haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death," that is to be sentenced to hell, They not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those that practice them, right? Calling what is evil good. That's the danger. My unconverted friend, if you're here today, hear my voice. You can't keep suppressing the truth. You can't keep running from God. You've got to surrender. You've got to come to Him because you run the risk of God saying, enough, I'm giving you over. And then you embrace more and more wicked stuff, and do we not see that in our day? The vileness, the, the, the wickedness that, that wouldn't even come off the lips of a, in a back alley corner 20 years ago is now just pronounced happily everywhere. The natural man is unable to understand the spiritual things of God. Look at Chapter 1, right here in verse 10, uh, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Or as Paul says, the natural man does not accept the things of, of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That's why you need to beg for the Holy Spirit to regenerate you. That's why we study the Orta Salutis, so we can understand the election, and then when you're called in time, to come and embrace Christ. Peter calls us, a, extracting from the Old Testament, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You know, this verse, by the way, <clears throat> these people that think there's two peoples of God, like the Jewish and, and you know, the, the Gentiles, he's using this language and applying it to Gentiles. There is one people of God. The dividing barrier has been broken down. but he uses these terms to say, You, you are all these, the church, for God's own possession. Why? Why? The verse goes on to say, so that there's the reason so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why he's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, and you should want to shout it from the rooftops so that everyone knows. Chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light. For their deeds were evil, and everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought from God. Well, Jesus alone is the way to life and light for mankind. Jesus alone is the one that is triumphed over the devil. Every conversion from a lost, sad state of sin to being made, a new creature in Christ, is a miracle. It, it's glorious. Paul says back in Ephesians 5 there, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. And if, if you believe that truth, walk as children of the light, right? It's a high calling we have. Walk as children of the light. Or Wesley in his hymn, um, and can it be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with lights. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that you? my God should die for me. Isn't that beautiful? I almost want to change the last song, and we sing that, but we we have a good final last song. The uh, conversion of uh, Augustine in the 4th century is quite remarkable, as some of you may know. He lived a notoriously wicked life. His mother Monica just had a burden and prayed for his salvation, and came a time where he's going after philosophies and trying to just understand things, but meanwhile living in immorality and, and all manner of wickedness. And, and, and he demonstrates the power of the Word of God, in his book called "The Confessions: His Confessions." And he, he tells a story like this as he's seeking all of these things, and he heard children over a fence singing, "Teellagie, Tellalagi, take up and read, take up and read." And lo and behold, he comes to the book of Romans, and he turns to chapter 13, where it says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing drunkenness, nor in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Just as Christ is the Word and the word was life and light. And so it was that the word gave new life to Augustine. He would say this in his confessions Upon right after reading this. We're talking about the power of the word of God to bring about conversion. Um, he says this instantly, with the end of the sentence that I read, by the light as it were of confidence now darted into my heart, all the darkness of doubting, vanished away. It's the power of the Word of God. You know, you could sit there and just kind of reason with somebody, but, but you know, look, I mean, come on, look at you know, whatever. But the Word of God is what is powerful, what is transforming. And for some of you young people here, what is it that's holding you back? Why would you not want to come to such a glorious Savior as Jesus Christ? God's Word is a lamp, it's a light, um, for with you is a fountain of life, and your light, in your light we see the light. Jesus is the, the light of the world. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown into our own hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. Light shall shine out of darkness and has shone into our hearts. He who raised Lazarus from the dead, dead for four days in the tomb, Lazarus come forth and rose him from the dead, can raise you being enslaved to sin and deliver you and give you everlasting life. There's no other hope in mankind. Now we're starting a Sunday school class in two weeks. here's an official announcement, October 2nd at 2 p.m., in this room for the adults, on the cults um, I think we're calling it, responding to the cults, that we might understand what they embrace, what they believe. How do we interact with them? How, how do we put the truth of God next to what they believe? And, and, and you know, there's many claims that the cults make, but Jesus is the one that said, "He is the way." He is the truth, he is the life. No man comes to the father but through me. He stands apart from all the other religious leaders and gurus in the world, the Buddha, the Mohammeds and all of this, all of that. He stands totally apart because he lives. He reigns in heaven even as our great high priest, the one that intercedes, the one that has such compassion upon us, the one that is active. And where are all these other gurus? In the tomb? Dead, right? I've met some that claim to be spiritual, especially outdoing evangelism. Oh, but I'm a very spiritual person. And you drill down and you find out it has nothing to do with Christ. (laughs) Apart from a relationship with this word, the word that is life and light, you cannot know God. How does Jesus' light shine in the world today? The light shines in the darkness. We already talked about the idea of it continually shines to expose maybe the dark corners of our heart, maybe where we're harboring something. It shines in there and seeks to remove all of the darkness. How does his light shine when Jesus is in heaven? What did he say at the Great Commission? Lo, I am with you always. Do you believe he's here? Wait, Where? Kids, where's he at? Yes, he's here by his spirit, right? We have Revelation 2 and 3. Jesus is very intimately involved in the churches. He walks among the, the, the candle stands, right? He's very intimate. He's, he, he's very, he, he knows everything. He is not absent. He's at work in his churches. We have another baptism coming up. He's still saving one sinner at a time and expanding his kingdom. <coughs> Light shines from the infallible Word of God, just like it did for Augustine, transformed him like that. So every time the Word is read, every time the Word is preached, there's light coming from that. And also, actually, as we begin to conclude, this is my my uh, main application for us today: it, You are the light of the world. He shines through his people, doesn't he? Right? You know, take a survey of a thousand people, how they came to Christ. It's not going to be, well, I just wandered into some church and, and, and all that. It's often personal evangelism. It's sharing the gospel one-on-one that by far um, outstretches those that just happen to stumble into a church church. Now, of course, he uses that as well in the preaching of the Word of God. Yes and amen. But we are the light of the world. Jesus is surely, just as he is the light of the world, we are called to reflect that light. When Jesus was in the world, he says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But then he turned to those who believed in him and said, you are the light of the world. John develops this in his first letter. Chapter 2, when he's talking about this new commandment, on the other hand, I'm writing to you a new commandment, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The one who says he has the light and yet hates his brother is in darkness even until now. But the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Remember the upper room when Jesus washes the disciples' feet? We'll see that in chapter 13 when we get there. He said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. It's a profound witness, isn't it? The, the love of a body of believers, a spiritual family, weeping with those that weep, rejoicing with those that rejoice, coming together, drawing closer together. So do men and women see Christ in you? Will they see Christ in you tomorrow when you go to the workplace? They will not find him in the world today. The world's literature and culture, and you can look at our depraved culture, they're certainly not going to find Christ there. But do they see Christ in you? And, And furthermore, they'll see him as we increasingly become this light as he shines into our heart and transforms us to make us holy, to make us vessels fit for the master's use. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief mend of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How do we glorify God? By doing those things which he has called us to do. Also, the light of Jesus is revealing. That is, it penetrates The darkness, it exposes the darkness. Remember, it says right in our text, and the darkness was not overcome by it. So it's revealing in our workplace, in our homes, how we raise our children. All of these things work together. So I have one last question. Are you of the darkness or of the light today? (coughs) If you're of the darkness, you're still a slave to sin. That doesn't mean you're a drug addict and robbing banks necessarily, that you're as wicked as you possibly could be. It means that you are a slave to sin. You don't know what it's like to be free by the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe some are afraid to become a Christian, thinking it'll be too costly. I'll have to give up this and give up that. But you have so much to gain. Don't even think about that. To gain spiritual life with Christ for all eternity? Life without Christ is darkness. It's depressing. It's death. You're going nowhere. You're living a few short years on this earth, and then that's it. You enter eternity, and you're sentenced to hell forever. The light of the Word word shines forth today. God the Son came into the world as a man to bring life to sinners by dying for us. But we must repent and believe. So come to Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> our Father, we thank you for your word. It does not return void. We thank you, Lord, just even for this the simple language, language that will be repeated as we continue our exposition. Lord, I, I pray especially for any here who are unsure of their salvation or who are sure that they're not in Christ, that they would contemplate what they've heard today that you give them no peace, no rest, O oh God, until they fall on their knees and cry out, broken and repentance, and running to such a gracious Savior, a good and gracious King to our Lord and Savior. Indeed, he is. And Lord, for those of us that are believers, that we would just seek to, to be that light and to embrace the light and to walk as children of light.